This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. And if you'll join me in Matthew 10, verse 34 through 39. Sorry, chapter 10, 34 through 39. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, those are some inspirational verses. Uh, We will get to the part of the sermon where that makes sense and maybe is hopeful and uplifting and not just a real big bummer on your day. Uh, We're continuing this uh, week looking at the second article of the Apostles' Creed. We've been working through the Creed and we'll continue to do so because we thought, hey, it might be a good thing for us to walk slowly through this affirmation that we say every single week. What does this actually mean? Uh, What has it meant and what does it mean for our congregation? And so last week uh, we started off in that second part of it, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And we did the first two-thirds of that. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. And so we're going to wrap that up this week with uh, talking about our Lord. As Christians, we make this claim all of the time. It's in our scripture readings. It's in the songs that we sing. It's in our prayers. We talk about the communion table being the Lord's table. Um, And I often wonder if we know what the word Lord means anymore because we don't really use it in our common parlance. It's not something that we go around calling other people Lord. It's just this kind of word that has kind of some, maybe for most of us, some Christian or some churchy overtones to it. So hopefully by the end of this evening, we'll have a better idea of what it means to call someone Lord and how significant that claim is in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, our Lord. I will warn you uh, this evening that I really got deeply into like theological nerddom with this particular message. And so I'm going to be quoting from a lot of other people. And I'm, I'm going to go on this long sort of like roundabout discussion about words and etymology and like you might get lost a little bit, just like humor me. And maybe there's something that God will redeem out of that message by the time that we close tonight. When I was doing some research into this claim of Jesus Christ being Lord, uh, as I consulted like text after text, it became really clear to me just how radical and subversive a claim that was in early Christianity. So what seems pretty commonplace to us has not always been commonplace. Uh, It really meant something that was dangerous, that was socially dangerous and politically dangerous uh, a while ago. And I wonder if it retains any of that social and political danger today Um, or if it should, or if it's lost it, can we recapture it? There's this theologian that I was reading named Alistair McGrath, and he reminds us that the very focus of the creed is the name and the relevance of Jesus Christ. He says the whole creed is an expansion on that simple statement, Jesus is Lord. We talked about that a little bit last week. 
that Jesus is Lord might have been like the first Christian creed ever and maybe the only Christian creed that shows up in Scripture. But what does it mean for us to have a Lord in the first place? That's what we're going to explore a little bit tonight. I think one of the reasons that we find difficulty with this whole word and concept of Lord is because uh, we don't live in a kingdom. We live in a democracy. So we have kind of done away with official lordship here in the United States. Uh, We are not ruled by the absolute power of a single person. We elect our topmost leader and we install them as president uh, to a limited term. We choose men and women that we want to represent us uh, in the House of Congress where laws are made. We elect men and women to interpret and apply those laws. So as citizens of a democracy, we have a lot of say Historically speaking, we have a lot of say in who actually governs over us and who has power and what kind of power that they have. So we still have lords, but we just get to choose them at the ballot box. Now, most of us know that our system of governance, democracy, is kind of the new kid on the block, historically speaking. Uh, It wasn't so long ago that the United States was still called the grand political experiment. What has been more normative across time and throughout the world is governmental power consolidated into the hands of just a few, and then bloody wars are fought over who gets to wrest that power from whom. I think maybe the the best analogy we have today for the kind of lordship that maybe we need to get our minds into um, could be, uh, an example could be our own military system, where there is a pretty strict like adherence of whom obeys whom, and you don't really get to choose who your superiors are, and there's absolute allegiance and obedience up and down that chain. I have heard also that this uh, concept of lordship is fleshed out in things like Game of Thrones. Heard that that was a good show. I'm just kidding. I totally watched every episode of Game of Thrones. I was super obsessed with it. I would go home from like preaching here and go directly and watch Game of Thrones. I don't know if that's a confession or not. But, um, I mean, swearing allegiance to a Lord meant something in that world. And it's built loosely off of the kind of fealty that we would see in uh, the Middle Ages in Europe. And so there was a kind of strict adherence or allegiance uh, to the person above you. And usually you had people that were swearing allegiance to you. So whatever you told them to do, they had to do. And that's what it meant to have a Lord or to be a Lord. These people had no choice over who was above them, and you usually didn't have much choice over who was below you either. And often ruling in a position like that was a lifetime role that could be passed down to the next generation, or you could elevate someone from one position to another. The title of respect often given those who ruled over you was Lord. But what does that word mean? Like, where did that come from? Here's where we go on this little word detour. So if you're a geek like me, you might be interested in knowing that the English word Lord comes from an old English word meaning uh, called hlavard. It's great. And the hlavard actually comes from a different old English word, hlavird. All right, tracking so far. Hlavird actually means loaf keeper or bread giver. So the word that became Lord comes from an old English word that means keeper of the bread. Now you can see how significant that might be, right? This is the person who gives you your literal sustenance. The Lord is the one that provides for you, the keeper 
of your bread. Some of you are already like miles ahead and you're like keeper of the bread, loaf keeper. There's bread behind him right now. I see where he's headed with this. You're right. That's where we're going. But without a loaf ward or a bread keeper, we can have no sustenance. And so the Lord, the the fealty, the obligation that was paid to a Lord was an obligation of necessity and one of respect for the power that that person had. That didn't mean that it was beyond being abused. You have a lot of power if you're another person's sole provider and sustenance. In Greek, the word that we translate into Lord in English, we're working our way backwards here from English to older languages. Uh, In the Greek text uh, for the New Testament, the word that we translate into Lord is the Greek word kurios. Kurios. It's a title given to the, the head of a household in ancient Greece. Someone who would also be a loaf ward or a bread keeper. Then it was also this Greek word got applied uh, to larger things, applied to kings and emperors as the heads of the national household. Kyrios, title of respect, meaning Lord. It was this title that invoked a kind of deference and loyalty to whoever you applied that to. That same theologian, Alistair McGrath, that I mentioned earlier, points out that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, when that was being translated from Hebrew into Greek, when they were trying to like update the translation about 200 years before the time of Christ, these Hebrew scholars had to pick a word to translate the tetragrammaton into. That's a big fancy word that just means the, those four letters that signify the Hebrew name for God. And so you've probably seen those anglicized, like written in English letters as Y-H-W-H, right? You've probably heard the word Yahweh associated with that. This was uh, the the history behind this word, this uh, kind of anagram is really neat too, because it it comes from the story of Moses. When Moses goes to the burning bush, or uh, uh, the bush erupts in flame in front of him, and this voice speaks out of it and tells him all this stuff about what this God speaking through the bush is going to do for Moses and his people. He says, okay, if I take this message back to the elders in Egypt, like, who do you want me to say sent me? Because they're going to ask, like, who's bringing, like, who's giving you this message? And you know this story. The voice from the burning bush says, you tell them I am that I am sent you. And even in Hebrew, this is kind of mixed up and topsy-turvy because depending on the context, those same four words, I am that I am, could be translated, I am who I will be, or I will be who I will be, or I will be who I am, all depending on the direction that you look at that from. And so if you take the first letter of each of those words, I am that I am, you get this Y-H-W-H. And this phrase became the name for God. Now, as the Hebrew religion started to move forward, a lot of holiness and respect was paid to this particular name, and it became too holy to even pronounce that whole phrase. And so when scholars would write it down to refer to the God of the Israelites, they would just write down the consonants, Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. And then they stopped dropping, in, or they, they started dropping any of the vowel pointings. So you just had these four consonants. They're trying to say, you shouldn't even try to say this word because it's so holy. And we want to keep really clear of that third commandment, which says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. We want to pay special attention to that. So we're not even going to say this word out loud. Well, that's great. 
until you're kind of reading through the text and you get to that word in the text and you're leading someone else, leading a congregation. And then you have to say something there. And so they started using kind of other words. They used most popularly the word Adonai. The Hebrew word Adonai, when they would come across Y-H-W-H in the text, they would just say the word Adonai. That's a Hebrew word that means father. Well, that's fine unless the word in the text Adonai is actually Adonai meaning father and not Adonai, this loan word for the name of God. So what do you do then? Well, then you have to use a different word. So they would use the word Elohim. Elohim is just a word that means God, but it was a word that's used all over the Old Testament to refer to all sorts of different gods. So it wasn't, there's nothing exclusive about its usage that would signify, ah, this is our God, our special God. So then an enterprising sort of thing happened and people said, okay, we need to be able to clearly distinguish that this is the name of God that we're talking about, not just Father, not just Elohim, but we don't want to say the name. So what if we just take the vowels from Adonai and Elohim and insert them over between these consonants that we don't have vowels for anyway? And this is where you get a made-up word, Yahweh. Yahweh is this made-up word that stands for the name of God as revealed to the people of Israel from Moses. Now, as things progressed, Yahweh became too holy to pronounce because people understood what you were, what you were doing there. Anybody here watch The Good Place? A handful of people. I love that show. I've seen it twice, maybe three times. I don't know, it's hilarious. We've seen it with the girls. And one of the things that happens, there's this character, the main character, her name is Eleanor, and she is in a place that is heaven or heaven-like. And one of the things that she can't do there is she can't use profanity. And so in the show, there are all these like hilarious like substitute words for the profanity that she would use. And what makes them hilarious is that you know what she's really saying. If you grew up in a Christian household like I did, right, like you could say a word like fudge for so long before your parents were like, stop it, because they knew what you were meaning behind that. And in a similar kind of way, that's what happened with the word Yahweh here, is even though it was a made up word, people knew, oh, but this is really like, this is the word, the actual name of God that we're referring to here. So they made, uh, more conservative Jews made one more leap and they got away from the word Yahweh. And even, this is true still, even in Orthodox Jewish communities today, they refer to the name of God as Hashem. And Hashem literally just means the name. And that is kind of far enough away, Hashem, that you're saying, listen, we're just referring to the name that we don't talk about, that, we, that is too holy for us to pronounce. So we're not trying to make up a substitute name. We're just going to refer to God as Hashem, the name. So if we go back to that translation project that the Jewish scholars had on their hands when they were translating their scriptures from Hebrew into Greek in the second century BCE, they had to find a Greek word that they could use whenever they came across the YHWH in Hebrew. And the word that they chose was kurios, the Greek word for Lord, Father of the household. It already carried a similar meaning to Adonai, which was already sort of an accepted second usage. It was already being used in Greek to, re to refer to a supreme leader or ruler. It was refer used to refer to the emperor. So it became the perfect loan word for the Jewish people to talk about who the God of the Jews is. He is the ultimate Kyrios, the ultimate Lord. 
So two centuries later, about the time of Jesus, this word, kurios, is so ingrained in the Jewish culture that first century Jews won't use that word to refer to anyone except their God. They refuse to call the emperor kurios because kurios for them means God of the people of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to God as kurios several times. Uh, One of the most notable is when he's being tempted in the desert. And he says to his accuser, he says to Satan, uh, over and over again, he talks about not tempting the Lord, about not uh, trying the Lord. And he's using the word kurios to refer to God there. The writers of the New Testament, especially Paul, he starts to make uh, an astonishing sort of word translation thing go on here because he starts using the word kurios to refer to Jesus. Now, Paul is like the most Jewish guy that you can get. And he knew exactly what he was doing in taking the word kurios, the word that was reserved in the Jewish people's minds, the Greek word that was reserved to refer to God and attaching that to the name of Jesus. In fact, a different scholar I was reading said that uh, for Paul, the phrase kurios Jesus," Jesus is Lord, would be his shorthand for the entire gospel message. He's making a claim of uh, lordship there, but he's also making a claim of the divinity of Christ there. Paul offended both the religious and the political realm when he made this claim that Jesus is Lord. You see, in the realm of religion, this is an affirmation that, Je- that Jesus has the same lordship as Christ, as uh, God. That Jesus has the same lordship as God. And all of the Hebrew religion is built upon this notion that their God is one and he is singular and unique. And here comes Paul with all that background knowledge saying Jesus is Lord and has that same lordship as the Lord. It's also that he is equal to God. But it also puts us in a particular relation to Jesus. Paul is saying that we serve Jesus as our Lord. Ben Myers, a New Testament scholar, tells us that to confess Jesus as Lord means to acknowledge him as the one who shares in the identity of as Israel's God. The affirmation that Jesus is Lord also has some direct political implications in the first century as well as today. N.T. Wright observes to come to Rome with the gospel of Jesus, to announce someone else's accession to the world's throne was to put on a red cloak and walk into a field with a potentially angry bull. To claim that Jesus is Lord is to tell all other would-be lords that you will not recognize their power or their authority. Karl Barth, who I've referred to before and will refer to again, reminds us that the first century Christians knew that there were many lords in the world. They weren't deceived that there was just one lord. There were some good lords and some bad lords. So for them to affirm Jesus is Lord isn't to place him alongside other lords or even at the top of a pyramid of different lords. It's to affirm that there is only one lordship, that of Jesus, that all other human lordship is derivative from the power of Jesus. Scholar Michael Byrd drives this point home when he writes, Nero did not have Christians thrown to the lions because they said, Jesus is the Lord of my heart. Confession of Jesus as Lord was always scandalous and subversive. 
Cameron's favorite theologian, Husso Gonzalez, agrees with that. He says, when Christians dared to call Jesus our Lord, they were uttering subversive and perhaps seditious statements. They were claiming that there was another Lord besides or even above the emperor, and this was not tolerated. Many people were tortured and put to death. But this confession wasn't just sort of a thumb of the nose at the political establishment. It had real social implications for those Christians as well. The Christians participated in society very differently because of their claim that Jesus is Lord. For example, it changed their view on slavery. Not just in the 17th century or the 18th century, but as early as the 4th century. Because the accepted social distinctions or classes ceased to exist when you acknowledge just one lordship. Remember, Cameron talks about how when you go and see the, uh, the early Christian baptismal pools, that they're sunk into the ground, and that the catechumens would be stripped naked of their clothing, and they would walk down into the baptismal pool, and they would be immersed in the waters of baptism, and then they would rise out of them. Nothing says equality and egalitarianism, like being stripped of all of your clothing. All symbols of where you reside in society are taken away from you, and all are made one in the waters of baptisms. Gregory of Nyssa, who was an early church father in the fourth century, he wrote this scathing denouncement of slavery in the fourth century in Rome. Now, he didn't have our modern notions of individualism and individual liberty, and so that's not where he started from. He thought that what slavery did that was unjust was that it resulted in a false lordship. It gave people a power that was reserved for Christ alone because only Christ could rightfully be called Lord and Master. This line of thinking would extend to other social relationships of the day, to husbands and wives, to parents and children. In Christ, they all have one Lord and all occupy the same level of subservience to that Lord. So lordship to Christ can only result in this radical kind of egalitarian ethic, one in which there are two levels, Christ is Lord, everyone else as subject. Karl Barth expands on this idea of lordship of Christ and how it necessarily touches and reorders all aspects of our lives. He says, there remains for us no hiding place to make the lordship of Christ merely internal, spiritual, invisible. As creator of heaven and earth, Christ is lord of the whole person and is either recognized as such or not at all. The lordship of Christ is not only a so-called religious lordship, it's very much an ethical, yes, a political lordship. We cannot expect to satisfy lordship with some extraordinary enthusiasm, be it ever so deep, sincere, and vital. It demands obedience. We cannot confine ourselves to merely accepting consolation from Christ, from his promise that in him our sins are forgiven and therefore eternal life is secured. We cannot limit ourselves to accept from Christ merely commands and instructions for the formation of our life. And all of this Karl Barth wrote in 1935 in Germany as he watched the German churches throw their full support behind Adolf Hitler's leadership. In other words, for Christ to be Lord, there can be no compartmentalization of our faith. We can have no Sunday persona apart from our Monday through Saturday lives. There is no spouse, there is no child, no supervisor, no president to which we owe more allegiance than to Christ. 
Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he quoted from Micah 7, 6 and said in the passage we read earlier, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Any of anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. None of these allegiances can hold more sway in our lives than our allegiance to Christ. Christian themes and overtones are woven into the very warp and woof of the fabric of our, com- of our country. And it's easy for us to assume that by electing the right leaders to write the right laws, we're somehow doing the Christian thing, that God wants to us to make America a more Christian country. But as Christians, we are not for, first and foremost the citizens of a democracy. We are the subjects of a kingdom. Christ is on the throne and we did not elect him there. His rule is sovereign, not subject to checks and balances. When we accept the invitation to participate in communion, each week we're re-upping our solemn pledge of allegiance to Christ the King. But pledging allegiance to Christ is a costly endeavor. Again, theologian Justo Gonzalez, he writes, it would seem that the claim of Jesus Christ is Lord has become commonplace and has almost lost its edge. We tend to think that the Lordship of Christ is a purely religious statement or at best, a statement about how to conduct our daily lives. We tend to think that this is one of many commitments we have and that it exists side by side with our commitments to family, nation, church, political philosophy, and so forth. But the lordship of Christ properly understood questions or at least limits every other lordship and every other allegiance. We are saying that our ultimate commitment is not to family, not to nation, not to church, but to him. We are rejecting every absolute nationalism. We are rejecting any other unconditional allegiance. Otherwise, he is not truly our Lord, but one among many lords. See, we want to find an easier way. We want to resolve these tensions by minimalizing the conflict between our religious practice and our love for our country or our devotion to our family or our friends or our desire to please those in authority over us. So we treat our commitment to Christ as one of us among a series of equally demanding commitments to our jobs, our civic responsibility, our parents, our siblings, our children, our friends, ourselves, and we rationalize that all of these are equally important and deserve equal time and attention. But that is not so if we want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Bart writes that if we err in any or more of these ways, we have only an arbitrary human faith and not real Christian faith. He goes on to explain what he means by that. He writes, from top to bottom, arbitrary human faith looks like real Christian faith that originates and lives under the lordship of Christ. Sooner or later, suddenly or gradually, it suffers shipwreck, loses itself in some piece of folly, or what is worse, in trivialities of various kinds, or degenerates into deception and unbelief. What has suffered shipwreck is by no means the Christian faith, but just the arbitrary human faith that pretended to be Christian. I've seen this happen again and again, both in our congregation and among the students that I teach. Things seem to be going along fine for an otherwise committed Christian, and then there's a hiccup or a disruption or a tragedy. A relationship ends. A person is fired from their job. 
The diagnosis is cancer. No one survived the car accident. These are the kinds of shipwrecks Bart is talking about. And sometimes the cause can be more subtle. Part of your theology shifts and you're no longer comfortable with the community that you're a part of. And instead of searching out a church that might allow you to continue to grow and be challenged in your changing understanding of who God is, you use this as an excuse to walk away from the church altogether, disillusioned or disenfranchised. Or maybe you hear a sermon that doesn't sit quite right, probably one of mine. Or a pastor that you like forgets to acknowledge your hard work. And you withdraw from the church and then from the faith altogether. These are the trivialities, deception, and unbelief that Bart mentioned. In any case, Bart asserts that what has been shipwrecked hasn't been a real Christian faith, but arbitrary human faith that pretended to be Christian. What has been cast upon the rocks and destroyed so easily is a human amalgamation of loyalties, expectations, dreams, and wishes that have Christian motif, but not Christian lordship. What is one to do? Fortunately, Bart supplies an answer as well. He says, in opposition of everything, absolutely everything that one thinks one knows of Christ and has of him, to let the alone, genuine, and healing exousia, that's power or freedom, of Jesus Christ himself come anew before the eye. And that is best done by relinquishing all, absolutely all, Christian convictions, opinions, and mental ruts, no matter how dear, and returning to the gospel where Christ is revealed to us. He's saying that we must submit every decision, every relationship, every commitment, every responsibility to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is more simple, uh, this is more than a simple WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's the radically complex H-D-I-S-A-T-I-A-A-A-T-I-D-T-T-P-R-A-R-O-C How do I submit all that I am and all that I do to the present rule and reign of Christ? Try fitting that on a bracelet. It's a tall order to allow our entire concept of who Christ is and what it means to be a Christian to be reshaped and reframed and to allow that to reshape and reframe all of our thoughts, actions, and commitments something that we cannot do alone, and we don't have to. Remember that part of the topic for this week is that Christ is our Lord. Our Lord, he's not just my Lord. He's not just your Lord. He's our Lord. That means if the Lordship of Christ is not for me alone as an individual, it is for us, the church, that I am part of a called community of God, not merely me and Jesus, we have over-privatized the Christian faith and the evangelical tradition. We forget that we are saved as a community and as individuals. Any sort of reshaping and reforming of our faith, Karl Barth says, can happen only in the midst of those who are constituted my brothers and sisters by the fact that they have heard and hear God's word along with me. My witness to God's word in the church, for it is only along with and responsibility towards my neighbors that I can really stand before God and vindicate myself in his sight. And every week we end our time by coming to the Lord's table together for communion. 
And we focus a lot on how we are made at one with Christ through the crucifixion and death that the elements represent. We sang a song about it today. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But we're also communing with one another. And in our church, we don't take a tray of bread and pass it around. And we don't take a tray of little cups and pass those around for each person to take privately on their own. This can serve only to reinforce an already privatized and individualized faith. Instead, we all rise from our seats. We come down the aisles together. We look into the face of another brother or sister in Christ, and we hear the words, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is not an accident here, because we are enacting the role of our community in our salvation. None of us are doing this alone. We're all partaking in the lordship of Christ together. And that's what we're going to do now. As those who are serving our communion tonight and our musicians come down to lead us, I invite you to stand with me now as I lead us in a prayer to prepare us for this time of communing together with one another and with Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Lord Jesus Christ, in taking your body and blood, we pledge our allegiance to you. We will have no other Lord in our lives. We will serve no other masters, except that we understand that all lordship and all leadership derives solely from you. In all our relationships, let us serve you. In all our responsibilities, let us serve you. In all our affairs, let us serve only you. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen. Come to the table. The invitation is the Lord's and all are welcome. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.